My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity and femininity and their result, which I call the Great Reconciliation. This week, I'm excited to share with you a very special episode, the live podcast recording of my April meet and greet with my friend Annalise from Feminine Not Feminist. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Feminism did one thing spectacularly well. It succeeded in making men and women forget how to talk to each other and instead taught us to talk at or past each other. That has been the case now for at least three or four generations, not just for the baby boomers, but their parents, the greatest generation who lived through World War II. If you'd indulge me, I'd like to tell you a story. When I was living in New Zealand in 2019, I attended a weekend seminar and was put into a working group of attendees, including three men and two women. One of the things we've all grown up seeing is the image of Rosie the Riveter, the strong, bandana-wearing woman with her sleeves rolled up, flexing her bicep and saying, we can do it. For the women who lived through World War II, that was a reality. As men were shipped overseas to war, military supplies and everyday essentials still needed to be produced. That meant women went to work in the factories during World War II as a necessity. That's who Rosie the Riveter is a homemaker, a mother, or even a young girl, conscripted into the world of work, the world of manual labor, the world of men, while the men were fighting in a world war. Rosie the Riveter was that girl's encouragement in the way that only wartime propaganda used to be. Rosie the Riveter was American, but the same phenomenon happened in tiny New Zealand, which in 1940 only had a population of 1.6 million people. According to Wikipedia, That's the population of Philadelphia today. Now, after having lived in New Zealand, I can tell you that although it's thoroughly Western, it feels very far removed from the rest of the world. And that's today, in the age of the internet. Can you imagine in 1940, you might as well have been living on another planet. Still, more than 100,000 people from that tiny country served overseas, 15% of their population, very, very far from home. So. Back to my weekend seminar. In my small group, one of the women, we'll call her Deborah, told me about her mother, a woman of World War II-era New Zealand who worked Rosie the Riveter style while the men were overseas fighting. Deborah said in the process, the women of her mother's generation discovered their capability. And Deborah, bless her heart, told me what her mother said the response was when the New Zealand men came home. Can you guess? The women of her mother's generation said, What do we need the men for? We've done it all ourselves. And Deborah had a prideful gleam in her eye. That's when time slowed down. We were sitting at lunch. I can still see the food court we were at, the beige table, the restaurant behind her. 
the lunchtime commotion all around us. And I can remember with vividness the mix of anger and heartbreak that swelled in me in that moment, the emotions jockeying for which would come out first. Deborah was seated directly across from me. Our faces were just a couple feet apart, and she saw clearly in my eyes both the anger and the heartbreak. Here's why. Put yourselves into the shoes of the New Zealand men returning home from war in the Pacific or European theater. These men had seen their friends and brothers die, often horrifically, losing limbs, blood, and then consciousness. They've suffered deprivation on deployment, starving on beaches or boats or battlefronts. Some of them had counted bullets in their rifles, knowing that the handful they still carried were the only tokens they could use to buy their lives if the moment came. These men were burned, broken, battered, betrayed. Perhaps some were POWs who had been captured, tortured, and released. God only knows the conditions of their bodies, minds, hearts, and spirits. And survivor's guilt is real. Ask any veteran and he'll tell you he sat with the question, Why me, God? Why did I survive? That question kills some men, often by their own hand, long after the fighting is done. These men traveled from their small, Edenic island all the way around the world to fight for freedom, all giving some, some giving all. And as they returned home to greet their wives, girlfriends, mothers, sisters, their beloved women who they left to give their lives for, what did these men receive? Welcome home. We don't need you anymore. The sheer arrogance. And perhaps now you can hear in my voice that same mix of emotions I worked to spare Deborah from. A tidal wave of grief, anguish, outrage, and fury at what I now know is the most deadly sin. Pride. Feminism didn't begin in the 1960s. It began earlier, with the culturally cultivated belief that women don't need men. That is a lie from the pits of hell. I hate to tell you, ladies, you do need us, far more than you realize or care to admit. And the longer you, I mean you personally listening, pretend that you don't, the worse for you it will be. Because feminism does not care about you. It will chew you up and spit you out, your blue-haired, tattooed, overweight body cast on the trash heap of antidepressants, rage, and ultimate erasure at the hands of trans women or biological men. If you think I'm wrong, look around. Look at your sisters, your mothers, your friends, the women in the media. They are aging and dying alone, angry, unfulfilled, because they have listened to a multi-generational lie that feeds on your rebellious, prideful attitude towards men, which was God's curse upon Eve and also Adam's punishment. Feminism is a lie which exploits that rebellious part of you to destroy civilization. Feminism liberates you from nothing. Instead, it enslaves you, conscripting you into a war with cosmic significance and stakes. And if you look around at weak and listless men, lost in video games and pornography, perhaps now you understand what it's like for women to come home from war and have men say, we don't need you anymore. Do you see what has been done to us? We were born into this war, 
born on the battlefield gifted to us by our fathers and grandfathers, mothers, and especially grandmothers, who savored, literally savored, as I saw in Deborah's eyes, the first real bite of that apple of pride in front of men too weakened by war to resist. This is evil of the grossest sort, meant to stick a sharp-nailed finger into the deepest divide of all, that between men and women. But now, with the resurgence of Christian faith happening all around us and within us, as God begins to write the epic conclusion to his story of civilizational rebirth, men and women are realizing that not only do we need each other, we were made for each other, designed for each other. Though that design has been marred by generational sin and evil, in Christ and only in Christ can we start the process of rediscovering and reestablishing what once was. This will require us putting our pride to death. Andrew Tate and the Manosphere are seductive and dangerous because they teach men pridefulness. There are plenty of voices criticizing both, including me. But what you won't hear much of yet is men and women questioning women's sinful pride, the pride that has divided them from men for generations, the pride that may be dividing you from a man right now, your father, your brother, a potential boyfriend or husband and ultimately, Jesus the Son, and God the Father. Culture teaches women that their identity must be built upon their divisive pride. You're not a woman if you're not independent from men, right? Are you even a person? But I think we can see that several generations of unchecked feminism hasn't made women more into people, but less. And the lie began in earnest in World War II, which I saw in the prideful gleam in Deborah's eyes at her mother's false sense of independence. I contained my rage and heartbreak in that moment. It was a triumph for me. But nonetheless, what I explained to her made her cry, though that was not my intent. The truth, however, hurts. That's often how we know it's the truth and why we so often hate it. But as Christ himself said, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. On the other side of pain and the death of pride is freedom. Christ had a lot to say about that, too. I tell you this story because this conversation you're about to hear between Annalise and I is an example of what happens when men and women stop talking past or at each other and start talking to each other. My podcast with Annalise is far and away my most downloaded episode. Until recently, it was my most watched YouTube video, too. And I know my episode on Annalisa's show is her most downloaded and watched as well. This proves how hungry men and women are for real examples of reconciliatory conversation between us. Please, God, let us start talking again. Men and women, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, boyfriends and girlfriends, brothers and sisters, daughters and sons. May we set down our pride and talk. Women, too because the great reconciliation approaches, and Lord willing, I'd love for everyone listening to be a part of it. In this conversation, Annalise and I discussed our private book club, including the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy and The Queen's Code by Alison Armstrong, the resentment fostered by mom Instagram culture, how Eve was attempting to control Adam, the intertwining of feminism and Black Lives Matter, the power of women's smile, and finally, men, women, and forgiveness. 
If you're a man or woman and this conversation inspires you to learn more about how you can be part of the Renaissance of Men, the Renaissance of Women, and the Great Reconciliation, coming up on Saturday, June 3rd, I'm hosting the second edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series, featuring a panel of all-female speakers discussing the virtues of the Proverbs 31 woman. Annalise, of course, is a gift all her own, and praise God, she's one of many outstanding female creators working to undo the lies of feminism and help women find their way back to their fathers, brothers, husbands, and to God. The women speaking at this event each exemplify different virtues of the Proverbs 31 woman, so we can see that men and women's identity doesn't come from politics or from culture, but from God as our great designer. This event will feature Annalise talking about dignity, Dear Sister discussing passion, Soli Oli discussing generosity, Bernardine Bluntly discussing courage, Martine DeLuna talking about patience, Issa Ryan discussing diligence, and last but certainly not least, the one and only Allison Armstrong will be joining us while she's on vacation to talk with me about wisdom. There is no better testimony to her belief in you as women than that. Go to renofmen.com conference to buy tickets now and use the code PROVERBS to take $5 off. Once again, go to renofmen.com conference to buy tickets now and use the code PROVERBS to take $5 off. The limited early bird ticket pricing ends on Sunday, May 7th, so act now to get the lowest price. And for the men out there, you're welcome to join us on Saturday the 3rd as well. And the recordings from the first digital conference are ready to go, and I'm literally waiting on Vimeo tech support to fix something on their end before pushing live. Visit rentofmen.com newsletter to subscribe and be notified when those are live and get a special discount on the sessions. Finally, the Renaissance of Men podcast is sponsored by Reformation Coffee, purveyors of fine beans hand-roasted by a pastor in Springfield, Missouri. Visit reformationcoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. Thank you for listening to this extended introduction, and please enjoy this very special recording from the live podcast with me and Annalise from Feminine Not Feminist. Hey, Annalise, it's good to be talking to you again. Good to talk to you. Well, we're here at the Bottle and Bean in Chandler. Thank you for suggesting this coffee bar, wine bar. It's a, it's a beautiful location. I'm, I'm, I'm what led you to come in here, by the way? I got coffee with a friend and mm-hmm. she suggested it. And as I walked in, I just glanced and I saw this room. And then me, you and Ryan had been talking about doing a meetup. Yeah. And so I immediately thought this looks like the perfect room for doing that. So here we are. We are. Ryan, Wisdom of Kings, couldn't yes. make it. Yes, sadly. Inexcusable. Inexcusable. <laughs> well, so um, I wanted to start out talking about... You and I have like a private little book club going. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we started with the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy. Mm-hmm. We've moved on to the Queen's Code. And then you also recommended The Abusive Wife, which mm-hmm. has really helped out a couple of my clients. So um, let's start. Let's just start with The Space Trilogy and then we'll work our way yes. into The Queen's Code. Because I'm really interested to hear what you thought of that book. Because it's a hugely important book in my life too. Yes. Okay. So start with The Space Trilogy? Yeah, let's do that. And you just want me to... Just riff. Just go. Okay. So full disclosure, I've read the first two books and I am almost halfway through the third. Yeah. It's what I'm working... Like this morning, I was went on a walk and listened to it for like two hours. Um, and so <laughs> I haven't fully... Uh, like. There's a lot that's coming that I can't talk about. So um, 
when I was on your podcast, Mm -hmm. we brought that up and I forget what the context for that was um, and why it was so crucial to the conversation. Okay. I don't, I don't remember. Maybe I had just read it or something. You had read it. it. It came up. I think it came up randomly and it was like, Oh, you read that too. And it was like, cause I, I Oh, cause I had been looking. That's right. I had been some, a friend of mine had recommended it to me and I had just been absolutely changed by it mm-hmm. a couple months prior. And I was looking for people to talk to about it, but no one had read it. And I discovered that you had read it. It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, the chance to talk about it was very cool. Yes. And, and you had, yes. And I remember you saying like, you were sad when it was finished because you're like, I'm never going to find a, another book like this again. And no, and I didn't understand it at the time. And now that I'm reading the last book, I'm beginning to have those feelings of like, I don't want this book to end. And yeah. yet I want to finish it because <laughs> it's so good. Um, but yes, I got into the Space Trilogy because uh, a friend, I told a friend that I would, did not read fiction. And my relationship with fiction was very, I was just dubious of it as a source of truth. And mm. I... I think it part of it was when I became a Christian, I like swore off a bunch of fiction and was like, I'm just going to read factual books. And this friend said, you know that fiction can communicate truth as well, right? Sometimes better. Sometimes better. And they recommended the Space Trilogy. Mm-hmm. And it was a while before I actually dove in and read it. And then I understood precisely what he meant by fiction communicating truth mm-hmm. and perhaps better than because it's one thing to tell someone you should do this or you shouldn't do this. It's another thing to narrate people doing what they should or should not do. And to just let the reader observe it for themselves Mm -hmm. and come to the conclusions that they're going to come to. And that's what C.S. Lewis does so brilliantly is Mm -hmm. he doesn't tell you what to think at all. That's right. He, he gives you a story and, and, and you see ideologies and you see the fruits of those ideologies and it's up to you to you know, let the reader be wise, and he who has ears did hear. Hear. So, um, yes, I'm. I'm pretty sure that 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 hideous strength will be one of the most profound books <laughs> when I'm finished with it. Oh yeah, and uh, very impactful. Yeah, once you once you start getting further into it, and things really start moving, and you start seeing the fulfillment of everything C.S. Lewis has been talking about in the prior two books, like the Oyarsa and all that stuff, as those ideas begin to be developed, it, it really brings the whole thing kind of home. Okay. And um, especially in the, in the second half of the book as you start getting into that. And what I, what I like about fiction versus nonfiction is that fiction lets you see the difference between a character's actions and their thoughts, depending on the perspective of the narrator. Sometimes you have this omniscient narrator Mm -hmm. that can say what a person is thinking or feeling, and then you see what the person says and does. And so you get this total 360 view of what someone is, of what someone is really about that you can't really get in nonfiction because nonfiction is always from one person's point of view. And so you get to see a bunch of different ideas in motion all at once interacting with each other versus Mm -hmm. this is my idea and let me justify it. Yeah. I don't know that you could do that with a nonfiction book. Unless you had a whole lot of people arguing throughout the entire book. Right. Right. And I'm seeing that especially with the two characters, Mark and Jane. Yes. And as it plays into oh, their perfect. marriage. Yeah. And I wasn't expecting, I wasn't picking up that hideous strength, expecting it to be a marriage book. And now I'm realizing there are profound implications. Mm-hmm. And I just, this morning, listened to uh, when she's having the conversation, and I won't spoil anything, yeah. but who we know is Ransom gives a 
uh, a little, uh, he talks about equality and the concept of equality. And that just, that hit me <laughs> because this was what, 50, 70 years ago yeah, and addresses the same exact mindsets that we see today um, and really does show there's, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, that, so. that was one of the most striking things about that book. So I fell in love with Paralandra. Like the Edenic vision in that book stays with me to this day. It's very, very transformative. And it wasn't until I started listening to Doug Wilson talk about that hideous strength that I picked up on some of the more subtle themes about relationships and marriage that are in that book and how profound that is, that it's ultimately that hideous strength is, is a book about masculine and feminine. It's a book about marriage. Mm -hmm. It's a book about reconciliation. I never even picked up on that in addition to everything else that's going on in the book. But Mark and Jane are they're central to the whole story. Yes. yes. So I would say more, but I am, have yet to figure out <laughs> right. how that's all going to play out. Right. And I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it for you either. As a, as a fun side note, when I had uh, Doug Wilson and, um, the author, Christina Deep, Hale, Christina Hale on my podcast. I wanted, what I wanted to do with the podcast was have the first hour be spoiler free and have the second hour have the spoilers in it. But within like five minutes, <laughs> spoiler instantly. Okay. Well, it's one of the major spoilers of the entire series, so. which is why I stopped listening to it. You were smart. As, I, as soon as you I realized were, <laughs> you were smart to stop listening to it. That's why I put like, be careful if you don't want spoilers. Cause I, I wanted to be able to have I was torn between having like a free flowing conversation because if everyone's trying to navigate around like the giant elephants in the story, it kind of stops up the conversation. So I just kind of let it run. And said, okay, so yes. you'll be able to, when you finish the book, you'll be able to participate. Everyone should go read yes. the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy. Highly recommend it. And without, yeah, without spoiling it, I was telling someone today or about, you know, C.S. Lewis sees things yeah. very clearly. And I think that's why when you when you're reading it, it 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 touches you so profoundly because it's things that we all see and none of us have put words to or articulated. And he sees things and you're like, thank you for saying that out loud. So say more about that actually. Um, okay. So in the conversation about equality, mm -hmm. there's and and again, this won't spoil anything, but there's a woman who is talking to someone uh, who wants her to join their organization, organization I'm going to call it. Yeah. And, she, and he asks her, basically, what does your husband think of this? Or what would your husband think of this? Or have you talked to your husband about this? Oh, I think I remember the scene you're talking about. Yeah. And she is, she's a modern woman. And she, modern for 1940s. Modern, modern for 1940s. Too, right? But like very feminist. Like, yeah, surprisingly so. Like very feminist for 1940s. Yeah. And she she just bucks at this concept um, when it's first introduced to her of, I'm supposed to ask my husband about this? Mm -hmm. And it's it's like, we get to see, like you said earlier, we get to see Jane, Jane's public actions and her private thoughts. Mm -hmm. And and in that way, on the, on the the train ride home from that conversation, we see that, she understands the truth that's in like she is again she's a modern woman she bucks at the thought of like i should have to ask my husband about this but deep deep down inside her heart it calls to her and it appeals to her and the way that c.s lewis articulates that mm -hmm. that's why i think it's when i say he sees things it's like 
he's not a woman. How does he know about this experience? Because he has really deep insight yeah. into the relationships between men and women. Um, so I hope that clarifies. That. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the, I think I remember the scene that you're, that you're talking about. And, um, it, it was a very powerful scene, especially to see like the proto feminism of Jane, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not quite de- obviously not developed to the point that it would be today. If C.S. Lewis were to come down and look at it today, he would probably like, <laughs> this is insane. Yeah. Right. But even, even back then the spirit of rebellion, yes. the spirit of this, the spirit of independence. And to be fair, you know, Mark isn't all that much of a man either. Right. Like Mark is a, a total pushover of a guy and he doesn't even push He's over. a feminist. Like the, there's yeah. a part where it talks about how he, he would have lectured about abortion. Uh, there was a line oh, in there that, it, yeah. yeah, he doesn't believe in God. He's, he's also a product of early feminism, so to speak. So yeah. they're and, both and in. Also, he so badly wants to be an insider mm-hmm. that he's willing to almost sell his own soul to be part of this organization. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't see what they're doing. He doesn't see what's going on. He just knows that someone's finally inviting him to be part of something. Mm-hmm. And so he has no independent sense of self mm-hmm. beyond the validation that he receives from being invited into this organization in various ways. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a picture of, of both, mm-hmm. you know, of things that were, like you said, how does C.S. Lewis see this? Was yeah. that even the case? But of course, he wrote the abolition of man, right? Mm-hmm. So, as 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 strong criticisms as C.S. Lewis has about feminism, abolition of man. I don't know if you've read that book. No, I haven't. That is a he references it in the preface, so I know it's scathing. Okay, scathing indictment. Like as as critical as he might be of Jane in some ways, like the stuff that C.S. Lewis has written about men is like, oh, okay, okay. I have to take that in. Yeah, I'll have to read that. I mean, his whole, his whole catalog. Well then if you, have you read the great divorce? Mm-mm. That's another. I'm very like new to, to reading Lewis. Yeah. I, I, I've been fortunate. Mere Christianity is my introduction to Christianity. Mm-hmm. One of them. And so CS Lewis has been part of my journey since the beginning. So I usually feel like if I have a question about something, I can probably go to a CS Lewis book and find an uh-huh. answer about it. <laughs> and a very well-worded answer <laughs> at that. <laughs> and an enjoyable, enjoyable yes. answer. But the Great Divorce is is a is a book about heaven and hell, right? I'm yeah. familiar, yeah, mm-hmm. with the premise. And so uh, again, talking about this about that hideous strength brings it all up for me. Like, oh, all these things, all they all fit together. Yeah, yeah. So, following on the theme of marriage and family and men and women, you've also read the Queen's Code. Yes. Okay. And you finished the Queen's. I Code. finished the Queen's okay. Code. How many people in here have read the Queen's Code? <laughs> Excellent. So. so <laughs> So maybe we'll avoid we'll avoid spoilers. Yeah, it's not much of a spoiler. Spoilery kind of. I mean, we won't give away what we're not supposed to give away because yes, there's some code of conduct there. Yes. Um. Yes. I. So a friend of mine, um, we were just chatting, and she said, "Check your email," and she had sent me (laughs) the Queen's Code. Okay. And it, I, I just devoured that book. It, It, it was. I have read books similar to that. And, um, you know, for instance, I read a book called, and it's very controversial. And so, you know, this is not my complete public endorsement of this book disclaimer, but there's a book called created to be his help me by Debbie Pearl. Uh And there's controversy surrounding that book. But anyway, I felt like the queen's code because that book had so many practical concepts for, Mm -hmm. 
um, interactions between men and women and in the help meet book specifically between husbands and wives. But it doesn't really tell you like the why or like, why should I accept these presuppositions about oh, men and women? Like, why should I interact with my husband this way? Okay. The Queen's Code takes all that and it, and it tells you why. Because men are like this and because women are like this. Therefore, treat each other like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I'd love to see it communicated to more, because it's not a Christian book. No. And it's not an anti-Christian book. Though. No, but it's, it's very, I mean, it's, it's like the, the light of nature kind of wisdom in a secular setting. Like you see. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'd love to see more of the concepts transmitted to a Christian audience because for instance, one of the concepts I think that stood out to me possibly the most in this book was about listening. Mm-hmm. It was talking about wives listening to their husbands or women listening to men in general. Mm-hmm. And she asked this question like, why do men take so long to respond? And I'm laughing reading this because I'm like, man, my husband takes a long time to respond to things. And you know, I'm <laughs> sitting there and I'm like, hurry up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I'm, I was very intrigued, obviously. Okay, please tell me more. So why do men take so long to respond? And she says, well, men are single focused. And you ask him a question, he's going to try to calibrate the best possible answer for you. So immediately it told me, okay, so it's actually like an act of love towards me that my husband is trying to come up with the best possible answer Mm -hmm. immediately. So he's not trying to be mean. He's not ignoring me. He's trying to come up with the best possible answer. Number one. Number two, if I interrupt him, he has to recalibrate and completely think about his thought process again. So I'm just prolonging the and I'm derailing him from his initial thoughts. Yeah. And, and, and then what really got me, and I felt very accused of in a good way, was she said, at this point, women may give their husbands multiple choice. Uh, pos- like, okay, you haven't answered my question, so is it a yes or no? And at that point, you've completely de- derailed your husband twice from answering the question. He's... He's not even, you're not even going to get the best possible answer that you would originally have gotten. And so now you just want a multiple choice answer and you're not communicating. Mm -hmm. You are not communicating. And that was just (laughs) flooring to me, but it's grounded in this concept of how men think, which is different from how women think because women are thinking about a gazillion things at one time and men are thinking about one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I I never read that in any Christian marriage book. I mean, it wasn't like, listening maybe wasn't talked about, but that is such a vital concept for a marriage relationship. And I'd love to say, this is simply like the fruit of the spirit, patience Mm -hmm. laid out. And like, this is just a manifestation of that. So I think there's so many concepts in there that I could clearly transmit to a Christian audience. It's simply, you know, thinking of others is more important than yourselves or a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You, you see that in the interactions between the couples. And yeah. it's, it's not, like you said, it's not anti-Christian in these concepts. It's, um, but yet it would be so jarring even to some Christian circles that oh, yeah. are so filled with feminism, feminist ideas. Yeah. So, so to, to lend some context for yeah. the people listening who, who don't, perhaps don't know what the Queen's Code is. So it's, it's a book by a woman named Alison Armstrong. And uh, the book is, it's a fictional book, but it's, it's kind of allegorical. I think it's, it's a mm-hmm. fiction. It tells, a, it tells a fictional story, but 
uh, specific principles are illustrated so through the course of the book. And it follows, is it four couples? So there's, yeah. So there's Melissa and Scott and they're the, the quintessential modern couple with mm-hmm. where she emasculates her husband. Yeah. And then there's Claudia and Bert who are just this glorious, beautiful picture of what marriage could be. Elder, elders. So elders. Elderly, yeah. yeah. And then there is, uh, not Melissa, Kimberly, who's divorced and she's learning about men like from a new, in her, in a new era. And then there is Karen and Mike who've been married like 20 years and are uh, in that intermediary stage, I guess. Yeah. So, so using these characters for women and, and for men, Allison illustrates different principles of how men and women can relate to each other. But the emphasis is on how women can learn to relate to men illustrating because Allison understands fantastically well, and she's a friend of mine as well. She understands men to a degree that when I first read the book, it would have been like summer of 2018. I was transformed reading the book because finally I had read someone who understood my own mind as a man better than I understood it. And that was very <laughs> wow. transformative. And, and also, cause I read uh, there's the prequel, the, the keys to the kingdom, which is about the stages of a man's development through life. And when I read that book, because I read the I read the prequel first, thinking I'll read the first book in the series. So I read that book, and as I finally understood the different stages of my life that I had always struggled to articulate to people. You know, this is what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I know it seems like it's off some sort of predetermined beaten path, but I know what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. when I read that book, I understood I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And then when I read the Queen's Code, she was so bang on accurate with my experience of being a man that I understood myself better after that. And uh, I gave a copy to my girlfriend at the time, and she was reading it. And, and this seems to be a pretty universal, ex- universal experience. She was in tears because someone had finally articulated men to her for the first time. And she could look mm-hmm. back on all of her previous interactions with men, whether it be you know um, romantic relationships or husband, uh, father, brother, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, I was so wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I got to and that's where the, the grief and the tears yes. come from is, I was so wrong. Yeah. And the, the, what's so insightful about it is, and you see this with Kimberly in her interactions with her boss and in her workplace, yeah. is once you notice like how women usually interact with men, you can't unsee it. And so then she actually has to basically break up with her friend. Yeah. And because every time she's with her friend, she just emasculates her husband and uh, is is verbally abusive with him. She didn't see that before, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the again where like the grief comes from because you're like, oh, now I live in a world where like I'm constantly seeing the brokenness in a way that I didn't before, and it's it's sad, and but so good to have that revelation. Yeah, yeah. I think that there might have been a, a point in time, well out of the memory of maybe even some of our grandparents, hard to say, where these things were just taught. It was understood that men and women are different and uh, men are taught how to relate to women in honorable ways. Not all men, obviously, but I think in general, that was passed on from father to son. But I think also women were taught, men are totally different from you. Mm -hmm. This is how you learn to relate to them and understand them or at least care for them. And I think we've lost we've lost that. That is gone for sure. Yes. Which is, I was thinking about this as I was reading the Queen's Code because the emphasis today is on the similarities or or, or the 
equality. The equality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. pushing this narrative that men and women are basically the same. Yeah, and, identical. And, and she addresses that in the very beginning of the book. And mm -hmm. so she asks these ladies, this woman who's teaching these younger women about how to interact with men, she says, you know, why, why are you upset when, when your husband does X, Y, Z? And he says, because that's not what a, a nice person would do. <laughs> what, well, okay, what kind of person? Oh, well, a woman. Oh, so it's not what a woman would do. So <laughs> you're comparing your standard as women. And they're like, oh, well, that makes sense. Uh, but, you know, because they see women as like the standard of what is good. And that concept really stood out to me that there is a little bit of a cultural expectation that like womanness is the standard. And what doesn't live up to that is subpar. Yeah. And so what she says is men are not hairy women. They are completely different. We are completely beings. different. Yeah. And that is so different from the narrative that, you know, it's, you nobody. Know, it's doing such a disservice to people who are like in difficult relationships because they're not learning to communicate with one another, but they're just being told, no, you're basically the same. You're basically the same. They're just running them into the ground. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they need to know that men and women are different because there's so much knowledge and um, just potential once you understand that. Yes. Yes. And what ends up happening culturally is women are told that men and women are equal and they're identical. And what that means is that women should be more like men, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And men are given the same message, but what they're not actually turned into women, although that is happening now as well. They're actually turned into boys, right? So you have women becoming men and men becoming boys. And that's the situation that we see. And that's the situation in that hideous strength. That's Mark and Jane. That's the 1940s. And it's still happening today. And it's even worse. And like, and that's why reading the Queen's Code was so powerful because it was like, here's how women can relate to men in a way that enables men to be men. Yes. It stops emasculating them and it honors women's femininity as well. Yes. That and was that, the other thing is yeah. that it's not a like, okay, just become a pushover, just become right. a doormat. Yes. There's absolutely none of that in the Queen's Code. Not and that's something bit. that I think, again, I want to transmit to a Christian audience because sometimes in Christian marriage books, you understand the submission part, but they have a hard time articulating like how that can coexist with not being a doormat or how that can coexist with, and, and the Why Queen's not? Code does it so well. Yes. Um, because, you know, you learn about actually how to communicate your needs in a relationship mm -hmm. and how to do so in a way that everybody wins. And again, there's idealism in the book and, you know, <laughs> Not everything is going to run as smoothly as it does for Karen and Mike or whatever, right. but we're seeing a picture of what things could be. And um, I, I just can't imagine what it must be like to sit down with all Alison Armstrong. And I would love to pick her brain. I would love to get coffee with her because she's just a brilliant woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, when, uh, when I met her summer of 2021, um, filming the documentary I was working on, showed up at her house and hung out, interviewed her, spent the afternoon with her, went for a drive with her and her Porsche. We just became friends. And then when I passed by Colorado on the way back, stayed with her and her, I guess her boyfriend now at the time. They're, they're kind of, they're not married, but they're kind of married situation. Okay. So I stayed, like, they stayed at, I stayed at their house and, you know, just having breakfast. And under, like Alison Armstrong was someone who I 
looked up to in this massive degree. And suddenly I found like, here she is, I'm hanging out in her kitchen and we're having breakfast. What is, what is going <laughs> that's, on? That's wow. Yeah. It's, wow. It's, but the thing is, she is as warm and lovely and mm. relatable and, and quirky and human, right? She's not some, you know, eye in the sky kind of author. Yeah. She doesn't have any attitude about herself. She radiates, she embodies the love and the warmth wow. that you would expect the author of those books to have. And, and she has that. And you can see it in her photos. Like she, I think she's 60 now. She's in her 60s. She, I, when I saw a picture of her, it's like, what, what a beautiful woman. Like, yeah. and it's just, yeah, there's her smile. And I contrast that to like the angry, I don't know. Yeah. There's just not, there's not that bitterness there. Mm-hmm. And it makes her very beautiful. So. She's, uh, um, I, I was messaging with her. She's going to be part of the, the, con- the conference that's coming okay. up. So she did agree. When this comes out, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll place the ad so everyone knows what we're talking about. But the second edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series is going to be Saturday, June 3rd, uh, with a lineup of all female speakers, including Annalise. And the theme of the conference is uh, the Proverbs 31 woman. And uh, Annalise, you, you've been assigned dignity, yes, uh, which I was excited. Which I, was, I thought that was the perfect one for what you do. And uh, Alice and I are going to talk for about 45 minutes about wisdom. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, a dialogue. And I'm very excited to have, that, uh, to have that interaction with her. And I actually went back and I read that section of Proverbs 31. And I was so struck by it because you said the, the, the feminist dichotomy, this is my words, but mm-hmm. the feminist dichotomy of boss babe versus doormat. Mm-hmm. You have to be a boss babe so that you don't become a doormat. That's the feminist narrative. Yeah. And then I went back. And I read Proverbs 31. It's like, there's no boss babe or doormat in any no. of this. And, and yeah. as you're talking about Alison Armstrong and the Queen's Code, it's like, what she writes speaks directly to that. Yeah. Women get to be women and men get to be men and they get to be different and they get to love each other and they both get to be capable. They both get to be warm and alive in these incredible complementary ways. And there's no power dynamics. There's no competition that the, cause the idea is one in order for one to succeed, the other must be, you know, uh, uh, pushed to the ground, Yes, but no, they can both go up together. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited to, to see that interaction. <laughs> I, I actually, I'd love to, I'd love to hear a conversation between you and Allison because I agree that the Queens code is not a Christian book. It's not an anti-Christian book. I wouldn't recommend it if I got the least sense that there was anything antithetical to Christianity, consciously antithetical to Christianity. However, I do think that there needs to be this book for a Christian audience uh-huh. that is based on Christian principles so that at least people can feel, comf- can feel not comfortable reading it, but so that they know that someone's speaking their direct language mm-hmm. to the concerns that they carry. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I'd love to hear you have that conversation with her. Um, to be able to translate, I guess. Well, if you want to introduce me to her, I, <laughs> I can do that. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So would you be willing to share some of the differences that the book has made in your life? And I can share some of the ones that it's made in my life. Well, I think the listening one was the biggest yeah. is that, um, and again, to, to correspond to how this relates to a Christian worldview, it's all just about patience. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what she says that men have a good reason for everything they do. That is absolutely true. And that was profound because it's, it's in so many dialogues in marriage, you're talking to each other, um, but, and maybe you're trying to figure out a solution, 
And if in the back of your mind, you have, you assume that this person doesn't have your best interest at heart, you mm. assume, you, you make assumptions about their motives, you cannot get anywhere with, you know, there, if you look at that person though, and you say, okay, we disagree about methods, we disagree about the particularities, but I trust that you want the best for me. And I trust that you have a reason for the things that you're doing mm -hmm. and you're not impugning their motives. Mm -hmm. You're simply discussing methods and it, and it removes that personal bitterness from the conversation. That was huge for me. Mm -hmm. My husband has a good reason for everything he does. So, and I may, we may dispute methods or whatever, sure. but I can look with a spirit of, and that's, and that's, a Christian virtue is charitableness, yeah. assuming the best of another person, mm -hmm. you know, choosing to not, uh, to not engage in suspicion and, um, and just exercising. Yeah. Charity towards that person. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's one of the biggest things. I can say for myself, the first biggest impact that that book had on me was the part where she writes that if a man is around a contented woman, just in the room with her, he is being recharged. Just to be in, just to be sitting quietly with a contented woman any, near him, mm -hmm. he's being re recharged. And when I read that, tears came to my eyes because I realized I had almost never experienced that. I knew how true it was, but I had never actually been around a contented woman. In fact, as I go back into my memories and I think through trying to find one, an example, there's only one that I can think of. And it was a, it was 30 seconds, five minutes in the car driving back from dinner. And that memory still stands out in my mind so clearly. And, and, and I think it, it, it makes me feel almost angry at that, that women have perhaps been taught that being contented is wrong. That mm -hmm. a, I, I, I don't know, but it seems to me like, why won't women allow themselves to be contented? Or are they told that they can't be? You could probably articulate it better than I can. Uh, oh, so there's a few verses that come to mind because right. what you're describing, the opposite is talked about in scripture when it talks about it's better to live on the corner of a rooftop oh. than with a... Uh, contentious spouse. A contentious wife. So I may be contentious and content, and content are like the two opposites there. And, and then, you know, it's better to live in a desert than with a nagging wife or, or something like that. And a couple clients who I've shared that verse with. And that book, The Abusive Wife, yeah, that talks talk about, about that, that too. too. Yeah. yeah, so, and, and this will tie into that because I think that there's, there's a big reason I think that women have a hard time being content, myself included. So I'm throwing myself under the bus here to say, I'm, I'm with you in this, that this is a sin struggle. But one is we have, I, I guess access to so many other people's lives and women online in their groups can really nurture like resentment and entitlement within themselves. Oof. Okay. So I think that there's many reasons, but the first one, I think that there's, there's, I, I don't know, maybe I'll just call it like a culture, a mom Instagram culture or like Mm. a wife Instagram culture that just fosters resentment and, um, and feeds on it. And mm -hmm. so, and you don't even need to have social media to see this, but sometimes the energy in the room when a bunch of women get together 
it can be so beautiful and positive if they're edifying each other. Mm -hmm. And it can be so destructive and bitter if they aren't. And so because women are, we're social and this is how we interact. A lot of women are feeding off this contentment from their friends and other wives that they're interacting with. And they, they bring that to their homes Mm -hmm. and then they're discontent wives. Um, And so that's something you have to watch out for as a wife is what am I, what am I allowing myself to hear and then bring in and infuse into my relationship? Um, So that's the first thing that comes to mind in terms of women not being content. And then the second is, is, is what we talked about in the podcast about just the fall and Genesis three. And we know that we have, uh, what did we call it? The, that marriage activates the curse. Oh yeah. Of Genesis three of your desire will be, you know, and against or for your husband and he shall rule over you. And so, um, we have, we have that acting against us. And if you're not mindful of it, it's a default position that you take. Yeah. Um, you have to actually be actively not engaging in that and killing sin. And (laughs) yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a really good point. I I have a, I have a Twitter thread I'm working on about this that, and I've said it on Instagram for is that God's curses are legit. Mm-hmm. And the way that I read Genesis three is that your, des- your desire will be for your husband. I think the same, that same language is used only once in the Bible in reference to, I think it's Cain, right? Your des- right. Sin. Uh, yes. Your desire yeah. sin has for you. It's that same kind of, it wants to master you. So your desire yes. will be to usurp the authority of your husband, but he shall rule over you. So like energetically, that's like, I, I have to control. 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 That's the word. Yeah. It's like, I have to control mm-hmm. my husband. That is part of women's makeup. Mm-hmm. Like their fundamental constitution, it's woven into them that they have to check, that they have to nail to the cross, that they have to submit. And, and that curse must be so painful. We have, men have our own. We have our own curse like that, that, we, that we struggle with, toil, right? That we have to fight against life to make anything work for us, that our, that our own lives fight against us to produce prosperity. Mm-hmm at essentially all ages. Like that's something that we, a burden that we carry as men that we know. And so that's why you get masculinity culture, like men do hard things and stuff like that. It's like, it's, it's getting men comfortable with the idea of a burden as part of your life and will be through your entire life. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I have a, I have a 70, 72 year old client and you know, he's, he's reaching elder stage towards the end mm-hmm. of end of his life. And he still wants to go and build and create you know, he still has this desire, but he, he finds his own age is fighting against him mm-hmm. now. His own body is fighting against him now. Yeah. So that's part, of, that's part of our curse. But our culture is very good with pointing at men and saying, you need to do the hard thing and pick up and carry your life and carry your cross and carry your curse. But it's not so good at pointing at this one. Like, this is the curse that women carry. The accountability part. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, and it's legit. It's legit. I have a lot of, yeah. I guess you'd say, empathy for it. Um, but it's, it, it must be frightening to encounter that. Well, and, and you brought up the word control and that's exactly yeah. the, 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 my, the word that was in my mind because the opposite of control is surrender. And yes. surrender and, and control, surrender is hard, mm-hmm. but trying to control everything. It's harder. Especially control your husband and control your children and control your life is harder in the long run. Mm-hmm. It's much more painful. Um, and so I think that's working against women too, because sometimes our discontentedness is we feel, we feel that we don't have the reins on everything. Yeah. 
And so we lash out or we act out or whatever. We want that control. And the solution is not for some women, they're like, all right, well, I'm just going to do more to try to get more control. Mm -hmm. And they're chasing control their entire lives. Yes. If you can learn to surrender and it's not just a one-time process, it's a daily thing. Yeah. Then there's, there's peace there. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not always easy. It's not that everything gets easy. Um, but it's a much more peaceful path in the long run. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for enjoying this live podcast with Annalise from Feminine Not Feminist. I have something very special to share with you. Behind the scenes of this podcast, my Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, I've been working for three years on a documentary series called The Renaissance of Men. In summer 2021, I took a 14,000-mile road trip over almost 110 days across the U.S. to film major leaders of the Renaissance. That's how I met Alison Armstrong, and why, if you've ever wondered, I seem to know everyone. Because I do. I've spent time with them, visited and in some cases stayed at their homes, and gotten to know their families. Since then, I've been raising funds to help complete the documentary series because, as I've learned, filmmaking is an expensive endeavor. And last year, Ryan King from The Wisdom of Kings helped me produce a 20-minute overview of the series to help in fundraising. I've kept that video under wraps until now. But when Sovereign Bra asked me about the documentary on our podcast last week, I decided it was time to go public. The Renaissance of Men series will document the 150 years of cultural conditions that produce the current state between men and women and the 40 years of the men's movement that helped bring us to this point today and where we're going from here. If you want to understand the war on masculinity, the renaissance of men, and the great reconciliation in the highest detail publicly available, this video will provide that. You can find it at renofmen.com series or click the link in the show notes. And here is my request. I cannot produce this series on my own. I am looking for men and women to help provide the funds to complete it. That means small donations from individuals, large contributions from investors, or even organizations willing to help. To do that, I need you. If you'd make a small donation, large donation, or connection to a donor or organization, I would be eternally grateful. Because I do not believe that the leaders of this world will guide us towards a civilizational rebirth. We must do it on our own as men and women. And this documentary isn't about me. In fact, I can't stand being in front of the camera. But the Lord has gifted me with this insight, this story that we're living in, and it's my responsibility to tell it so we can all move forward together. Once again, whether you're a man or woman, please visit renofmen.com series to watch the video, learn about the Renaissance, and find out ways to help. Thanks so much, and welcome to the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. I think so. I think so. And, and that path, and this, this fits into what the things that men talk about um, in my work is about, no, you as a man have to take on more. Like Jocko Willing talks about extreme ownership, right? So um, if, the, if the impulse, if the sin impulse within women is to control more, the sin impulse within men is to, is to abdicate. And that's what Adam actually did, right? Like Eve is there eating the apple and Adam was with her. Mm -hmm. What's Adam doing? Who knows? I have a theory. I have a theory. I'll just share the theory with okay. you now. I think Adam, I think um, both Adam and Eve were testing God in different ways because the serpent says to Eve, half God really said. And Eve's like, I don't know, did he? I'm imagining what her thoughts yeah. would be. I think Adam was thinking the same thought. 
but I think he was using Eve as kind of like a guinea pig. Like, well, God said that we would surely die. Well, she's going to eat that, and I'm going to find out. Like, is Shirley going to die? She didn't die, so I'll eat too. Wow. So that's my thought of like Adam was testing God, but using Eve, right? And so I think that's pretty bad. So, so that's our, and I'd have to think about how I would blow that out to a societal level. But again, you can see the dynamic of, um, of surrendering control, Adam, like not taking control of the situation and crushing the head of the serpent, yeah. which is what he should have done. And I don't know if you can say reliably within Eve, there's a desire to usurp control, but probably something like that is nascent in there. And you see that dynamic played out today where you have men starting to say, no, we need to take on more responsibility for more things, even if it's uncomfortable, yeah. even if you didn't have a father, even if your culture tells you not to and calls you toxic and all that stuff. If you try to take responsibility, you have to. I mean, yeah. you get better at that. And that's true. And at the same time, it's so difficult, it sounds like, to deliver the message to women. You need to surrender control. Yeah. Just take right. him. Well, because men that, that take responsibility and take control and are masculine are told they're toxic. And yep. women that take control are told that they're strong. Yes. And so we have these two. It's the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. And I do think there was a, a control aspect with Eve because it said that, you know, she saw that it was desire to make one wise. There you go. Why does she want to yes. be wise? Well, if, you, <laughs> if you're wise, you know things and you can do things with that wisdom. And, so, and you shall be like God. And you shall be like God. And you shall be like So um, like in, in First John, is it, you know, it talks about the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. That's all there in yeah. Eve's temptation. Yeah. She saw that it was good to eat. It was uh, desire to make one wise. And I forgot what the other one was, but yeah, there, I think there's absolutely an element Lust of the eyes and pride of life. And why boastful just, proto- yeah, yeah, yeah. Lust of yeah. the flesh, lust of the eyes yeah, and boastful pride of life. life. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's, there's control there. I think <laughs> that was also Satan's temptation of Jesus in mm-hmm. the desert. Same mm-hmm. three temptations. Mm-hmm. And he of course stood up to the temptation. Right. right. Yeah. He yeah. succeeded where Adam failed. Yeah. And you can kind of get a sense now, like here we are in this, coffee bar with the rest of the world out there outside and you know, people walking around, why these ideas would be so confrontational to the world, right? Like yeah. why is it yeah. men and women and families are the center point of the attack, right? Because this is, this is where it all began. This is where it all began. You know, where, what are our relationships to each other going back to the garden? Wow. I, that's so simple. And I hadn't, Hadn't thought about that, but yes. And, and then children as a result, yes. children are also the atta- uh, under attack. So yes, it's uh, what you see with like, uh, you know, Pharaoh trying to destroy the baby boys or, you know, and, and then you see it with, is it, uh, uh, when they try to kill the, the two and under boys when Jesus came, right? So there's oh, yeah. trying so, to, yeah. yep. Destroy the, it's the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. And mm-hmm. that's our, that's our battle. So, yeah. <laughs> you try and you try and tell that to people. Like, I think it looks like there are some some guys outside the window right there, like with tuxedos. Maybe they're going to prom or something like that, right? Like, just bring them in here and look, like like. By the way, you're going to prom. You're going on a date. You should probably know this stuff. Wait, what? <laughs> it's a little maybe a little <laughs> maybe a little much for maybe a little much for the guy in the pink maybe jacket. they'll stumble on your Instagram page. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, but the things that we talk about, it's it, it is funny because it's like. They touch us more than anything else. And yet they're the very things that like on a daily basis, maybe we really aren't thinking about. But right. go to university. Oh, Just scroll no, online you. for a little. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> scroll online for a little bit. What are the messages 
it's, it's, it's a lot of things pertaining to men and women and their relationships to one another and their relationship to God and their rights and entitlements. And I mean, that's the stuff that drives our behaviors. And, um, and then that's how we get in this mess. So, yeah. It's so, it's so, uh, I guess, primordial to who we are as, as men and women that, that, that drive to come together, mm-hmm. right? Not just romance and reproduction and marriage and all these things, all these things together. It's, it's the most primary drive of us as beings, like right down to the level of our cells are reproducing. And you can, if you talk to the scientists, you know, they'll even say your DNA has a desire to, to reproduce. Like mm-hmm. this force, this procreative force is so deep within us. And I, I remember years ago, the first thought that I, this would be 20 or so years ago, the first thought that I ever had about, uh, about Christianity was I was trying to understand, this is actually really interesting that I'm going into this, like <laughs> okay. I'm thinking about this right now, was that I was trying to understand why did Christianity, and now again, this is from way the outside. This is like, grew up Jewish. I was in the new age at the time. And I might've been hanging out with friends and we were like all smoking weed or something like that back then. So like, so this is the, this is the moment. That's what we were doing basically that summer it was like the summer of 2001, I think. And I was trying to understand why did uh, Christianity, specifically the Catholic church have such an obsession with human sexuality? This was the question that I was turning. Like policing. Yeah. Policing was, others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like this is in San Francisco in like 2001. Okay. You know what I mean? Like right. before this is prior to 9-11. It's like, gosh, why are all the Christians, although I don't know that I would have been able to tell the difference between Christians and Catholics at the time. Okay. So, um, but like, why are Christians so obsessed with sexuality? What's the deal with that? Because here we are in San Francisco, like as, <laughs> right? So, um, and I was like, because there's nothing more fundamental to us as human beings. That was my thought. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you can get a hold, uh, this, was, this was the language that I used at the time. I understand it very differently now. If you can get a hold of someone's essential sex drive, and I don't just mean sex in terms of like the pleasurable act, but the procreation, procreative act, like procreative act. If you can control that in somebody, you can control anything else. Mm-hmm. And so, I, of course, I understood Christianity and Catholicism as a system of control. Of control right, and power yeah. over others. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good thought. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but from where I was at at the time, yeah. like, you know, it's like, wow, like we're having a great time here in San Francisco. What's up with all those Catholics and Christians killing the vibe? You yeah. Know what I yep. mean, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably literally like along the lines of what I was thinking. So, but I look at that now and I, and I understand that it's actually very different. Um, it's that that aspect of us is so treasured and so important and so vital that it has to be protected yes. and cultivated and nurtured. Yes. And, and yet, as, you, as, as we've been talking about, here you have the Queen's Code, you have this secular woman writing about this precious aspect of how we relate. Mm-hmm. It's like, where are these teachings in Christianity? Yeah. It's supposed to be treasuring it, right? Yeah. It's, it's a little odd. And the way. accusation against Christianity too is, you know, well, look at passages about women submitting to their husbands and this and that. The accusation is that it tears men and women apart. And yet it does, you don't think that's the accusation against no, Christianity? I, I, oh, oh, oh. oh, okay. Yeah. So no, I, I was trying to figure out, no, go, so I'm saying, yeah, me. yeah. I'm saying the accusation is that, you know, if you teach women to submit to their husbands or, you know, that we're perpetuating a power dynamic that, that drives men and women apart or, or is, is destructive is, to the union between men and women. Christianity is doing that. That's the accusation. That's, that's a, oh. 
where do they what do they base that on? Well, the, all the these fact, Christians with giant the fact families. That submission isn't yeah isn't <laughs> equal or and that's their no but but just track yeah. with me. Yeah, what yeah. I'm saying is that and you see this in Paralandra. So okay. shout out to Paralandra. Shout out to Paralandra. But that it actually it's the religion that brings us together. Yes, in the right way. And so the accusation couldn't be farther from the truth. It's completely baseless. Yeah. Um, but because they're and to go back to the equality yeah. thing, if equality in your framework is like the height of men and women interacting with one another. One, it's like a pathetic replacement for what we were made for. But if that's the height of your interacting with one another, look at Christianity. And I can't look at it from an outside perspective because I've never been on the outside right. of Christianity. So I really can't say. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems like, how, how do you reach these people? Like, it, it seems like you have to have a conversation about like, Again, what C.S. Lewis does with, is equality the highest thing in a relationship? Or were we made for specific roles that when we fulfill those roles, something beautiful and better comes out of that Mm -hmm. than equality could ever produce? And Mm -hmm. so equality is this pathetic replacement for the harmony that is meant to exist within Christian roles. So I kind of went on a, trail there. Keep going. But, so anyway, that's, that's to back to your point of, oh, well, it's, you know, why does the Catholic church policing human sexuality and why this, this, and this, and it's, it's to your point, so precious. And the union between men and women and the union between husband and wife, um, <laughs> it's, it, it's more of a, I think he describes it as more of a dance than a, I forget what it is, but, mm. um, yeah, if we could just see that. <laughs> yeah. I can say from having been on the outside of Christianity for almost all of my life, most of my life, I would say that if I can put myself back in that mindset a little bit, probably the attitude would have been like it forces men and women into these unnatural positions that because you're constrained in your choices and you can only do certain things and some things are wrong and hell and punishment and all the stuff that it forces people into these really constrained boxes that are very unnatural to their organic self-expression authentic self-expression. You need to read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Oh, a thousand percent. He completely (laughs) destroys and shows us how as a society we got to that point. Really? Same, like, okay, keep going. I'm curious because, okay, yeah, because this was, this was my life for 40 plus years. Okay. So it is ready to have your mind blown. Um, Bring it. He talks about the different types of, uh, I guess the priorities of men in different, men and women, mankind in different times in history. So you go back to the Greeks and the Romans, you have, what's the, like the primary focus? He calls it the political man. It's a man's relationship to his, you know, civic duty. And, um, you, you know, they have the Acropolis and mm-hmm. he calls it the political man. That's like the height of, of what your priority is. And then you, in the middle ages, you get the religious man. It's a man's relationship to the church, okay. his, his spiritual life. Oh, I see where this is going. Then you get the is it the economic man? Probably. Um, I'm trying to think if there's something between the religious man and the economic man, the but you have... The scientific man? So, so, okay, so the Industrial Revolution would have brought the economic... So, yeah, yeah so you have the religious man, you, know, you have the economic man, and then you have the, what he calls the expressive individualist. And that is, and I forget what the specific term for that, what kind of man it is, but basically your... You don't find your fulfillment in your job. 
You don't find your fulfillment in your faith, your religious participation. You don't even find it in your civic communal participation. (laughs) You find it in personal self-actualization. And so the reason Christianity is so offensive Mm -hmm. is because it, it, it declares and demands that you are not your own and you were bought with a price. Mm -hmm. Self authentic self-expression is height of human experience, authentic sexual human expression, authentic gender human expression, authentic whatever. And Christianity really puts a little bit of a wrench in that. (laughs) Just a little little one. Um, And that's why I think some of what you were observing maybe in San Francisco 20 years ago with this hampers authentic human expression. And that's why it's so offensive. That's why it's deeply offensive um, in particular. And he, and he breaks down how we got to that point as a culture, looking at philosophers as far back as Rousseau even. And that guy. Yeah. Rousseau. And, uh, and then you have years later, you have Freud and you have this idea. And then the poets, you have Woodsworth and, um, transcendentalists. Yes. And then yeah. you have Nietzsche, Marx, and Darwin, who are like the, you know, unholy trinity. Yep. And all of that feeding into this idea that, um, that a human's happiness is bound up in expressing themselves as they deem authentic or yes. worthy. If it's authentic, it is good. It's good. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas from the Christian perspective, if it's authentic, probably coming from your sin nature yes. and therefore bad. So you need a new nature. Mm-hmm. Let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. Yes. <laughs> and what's so funny about this for me and, and my life is that the, the pinnacle of authentic self-expression culture in America and probably the world right now is the Burning Man Festival. Like the only goal of Burning Man is to facilitate authentic self-expression in all of its forms, literally all of its forms, like nudity, blowing stuff up, big, crazy artwork, orgy dome, all that stuff. Like it's no no holds barred, right? Drugs used to be much more free flowing there before the Nevada Bureau of Land Management came in, but they're still, they're still there. Like really, really, I can't think of anything that is explicitly off limits Mm -hmm. at Burning Man. And Burning Man was where I got introduced to Christ. Right. Right. At Which the, you have a podcast on that people can listen yes, to. Yes. So if you listen to the podcast I did with Spirit Dream, would have been, I think it was September, October last year. I think it was the, was my hundredth. No, no, it wasn't my hundredth episode. It was like my two year anniversary podcast, something like that. So where I tell that story. Um, and that's the thing is, is they had been running this ministry there in kind of, kind of in secret, not, totally secret. They didn't reveal that they were Christians, but they were doing, you know, various Christian things using their own language that they had developed. Mm-hmm. You know, that was like, it was somewhere between like words that the secular people wouldn't pick up on the Christian right. themes behind it. Right. And there wasn't like a big cross out front or anything like that, but they were still <laughs> doing the ministry. Right. And it was there that they had been doing for 12 years. And it was there that I, I walked into their camp in, in 2015. Wow. Yeah. And here we are. And, and here we are. And here we are. So that'll be, I'll add that book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern, Modern Self. I'll add By that Carl too. Truman. By Carl Truman. Yeah, I've, I've heard that book in other circumstances. There's a shorter version of it okay. that um, 
you know, if someone wants to understand these concepts, but doesn't want to read the whole book, mm-hmm. he has a shorter version of that. And I don't know what the name of that one is, but mm-hmm. you can check that out. I read a book recently called uh, Libido Dominandi by E. Michael Jones. And that's the history of the sexual revolution up to 2000, which is when he wrote the book. And that book, it almost feels like from what you're saying could be the underside of what the Carl Truman book is. Okay. Because E. Michael Jones specifically traces through uh, different episodes in history, places and times. This is a nonfiction book of the various influential figures who, uh, who helped facilitate the sexual revolution as we know it to today. Today, mm-hmm. meaning up until 2000 when he wrote the book. And that was one of those books, 600 pages, small print, extensively footnoted, okay. right? Like 100 pages of footnotes. I got no idea how someone even writes a book like that. But it's just like, it's just, it was just a, a jackhammer to everything else. So many things that I, had, that I had thought. It's one of those books that just changed me from the inside out in ways that it's probably going to take me a long time to understand because the amount of effort and time and uh, devoted conscious intention transiting across the generations like over 250 years to create the for example the pornification of culture that we live in mm-hmm. today because that's where the book stops is like 2000 so in 2000 the internet was just beginning to get into people's homes a little yeah. bit like obviously we didn't have the high speed that we have today but it was just starting to get kind of popular with AOL and stuff and so he's and, and pornography had become part of the culture and of course you have the Bill Clinton affair and all that stuff and he, the amount of effort that was put in to create that even 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and now, I mean, it's, it was, there's a, there's a, there's a conscious intention behind all of it. Yeah. Very it, right, right, right. It didn't, it didn't happen it didn't by accident. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. We'll pick up, I'll pick up that one for the next one. Okay. Yeah. So perfect. So it's been about an hour. So this is, this will work, this will work great. If, does anyone um, have any, have any questions? Go ahead. Oh, uh, so the question is, what do I think about uh, the the one popular culture that tell, that's telling men that it's okay to cry? So uh, it's going to take the whole half hour. So <laughs> no, it's actually going to take a lot less than that. Uh, it's terrible. It's terrible. And there's a lot of different dimensions to that. So um, men relate to their emotions very differently than women do. So um, because for a man, whatever emotional experience I might be having right now, if, if the fire alarm goes off, I have to be able to set that aside in an instant to be available, right? So my emotions are part of me, but they're definitely something that I have to be able to keep in check. The idea that men should be able to cry in public is the message that's being delivered is you should be mastered by your emotions, right? Rather than be master of them. And so uh, actually, I, I did a tweet yesterday about this, that um, now in, in corporate culture, there are a lot of corporate leaders that are, that are telling other like CEOs, like you will help your leadership as a CEO if you cry, if you show emotion. And what I said in response to that is that what that is, is teaching men to pledge allegiance to this feminization of culture. Like if a CEO gets up and cries, what he's doing is saying, I'm, 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 I'm pledging allegiance to this feminization of culture so that you don't see me as a toxic man who controls his emotions. Yeah. It's super gross. It's super gross. I, 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 uh, there was a, a, a CEO coach with like a hundred thousand followers on Twitter. And I almost, I almost quote tweeted him and said that, but I was like, I don't want to ruin my whole day <laughs> if he catches it. But it is true that, that the feminization of culture right down to the level of the way that men are supposed to be able to relate to their emotions on demand 
in a performative way is it's it's corrosive to who we are as men. So I'm not a fan, not a fan at all. Now that said, I think it is appropriate on the other side for for men to be familiar with their emotions, to be able to express them, to have emotional fluency. Because there on the other side, there are a lot of men who maybe they don't know how to allow themselves to cry if they need to, right? About certain life events, right? A funeral or something like that. But there's also um it's also a book, uh, a very famous book that started what I call the Renaissance of Men called uh, Iron John by Robert Bly. And what he says is grief is the doorway to a man's emotions. So for women, the doorway to their emotions is through love. For men, the doorway to our deep feeling is through grief. What does grief require? Grief requires the ability to cry. It's grief. But men shouldn't be, men can't grieve in public. We, we grieve amongst each other in private in secret. And so men should be familiar with their emotions, but they have to train each other how to do these things, not in environments like this in public, but in, in secret, in male-only spaces, which we're not allowed to have anymore. So again, you can see that the compromise of male-only spaces means that men can actually learn how to be men. And I think that's intentional. So I think about these things a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, thank you. Anyone else? I was going to say, Alison Armstrong talks about that concept oh, okay. uh, in the Queen's Code just a little bit because I think one of the women asks, why doesn't my husband express or whatever? And she right. said, if, if you have to take responsibility in a situation, uh, basically what you said, it, it is for your benefit as a woman that your husband is not just responding to his emotions in this way, yes. the same way that you would, because he has to take responsibility in any situation. Mm-hmm. It's a protection for you. And so women can, they will often see it as an attack that he doesn't feel what I feel or he doesn't see, you know, but it's actually a, a way of the husband providing if you, and you can look at it that way. And yeah. So a, a way that I, I think about this in, in complementarian terms is that men meet the world with their minds and with their bodies. That's how we interact. That's our primary way of meeting the world. One or both of those, ideally both that you have, you have a very sharp, rational, clear mind and a body able to execute on the things that you see that you need to do. I think women primarily relate to the world through their emotions and intuition, right? It's less, it's less rational. It's not non-rational, but it's less rational. Mm-hmm. And you have these two different ways of relating to the world that take in information in two completely different ways. So like, and we see this every day in our lives in various ways where you know, I can walk into a room and everything looks nice and my rational mind says this is cool, but something in my spidey sense says something's kind of off. I don't like something that's going on here. Mm-hmm. It's, my, it's some part of my body taking in information on a nonverbal processing mm-hmm. way. So we see this, but I think women are far better at intuition than men are. And I think men are far better at rationality than women are. It's almost like we need each other. It's almost... <laughs> I, have, I have this crazy idea. It's almost, it's almost like we were designed for each other. Whoa, Whoa, that's, that's, I wonder if anyone wrote a book. So that it. would mean there was a designer. Oh, well, so. if there was a designer, well, what does that mean? Uh, let's think this through. <laughs> let the hearer, let him who has ears. Exactly. Well, if there's a designer, there's, there's probably a design. And there, if there's a design, there's probably a right and wrong way to do things. Oh, that's, that's crazy talk. That's, cra- that's crazy talk. Yeah. Well, this is, actually, to be serious about that for a second, it is actually way easier to reason. Like people say, Christianity is this felt experience thing, faith. You can reason your way through it pretty easily. Yeah. 
right? It's it's really not it's really not not that difficult, which is what C.S. Lewis is so good at. Mm-hmm. You just reminded me of another book, but Christianity and Liberalism by Jay Gresham Machen, and I you should read that. I just heard about that book because today. he addresses that concept of uh, people seeing Christianity, and this was back in the '30s. He wrote it okay. of yeah. of Christianity as an experience, as a life. Yeah. And he demolishes that and shows why it is essential that what Christianity objectively is. So anyway, another book. Actually, it, it just came up in a book that I'm reading um, called uh, Christianity and Wokeness by Owen Strachan. Okay. Yeah. So Owen is coming on my podcast or <laughs> Professor Strachan or Dr. Strachan. He's coming on my podcast next month, which I'm very excited about. So I picked up that book and he, met, he mentions Christianity and liberalism in that awesome. book. You know what else I read recently that was like amazing? The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Okay. Yeah. I haven't read it, but you that's re- like you, growing up Christian, like you know about Lee Strobel. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> so that's cool. Has that's anyone cool. else read that book? Yeah. And so, I mean, he lays out, he lays out the case. He yeah. Lays out the case. Yeah. We got plenty of time for questions if anyone. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> He's got Here, notes. He's got notes. Great. Oh, interesting. Say more about that. Like, un- I, I hear you. I, I unpack it for me, like what you have in mind around that. And in general, how does it affect Oh. So the, oh, I'm sorry. the difference between assuming the best of someone and exercising the Christian virtue of charitableness versus being willing to call out BS when you encounter it. Okay. Mm hmm. I think, go ahead. Yeah. In the context of the conversation here, we're talking about, I brought that up in the con, in the context of a husband and wife interacting with one another. And so I think it's a very different situation when let's say you're in a church and there's wokeness or whatever it is that needs to be called out. You can, um, it's like, there's a kind of a charitableness that you can, has to be exercised in a relationship that doesn't necessarily need to be exercised to the same extent when you're talking about church that is like shepherding people's souls. Like you, you, that's when you need the strong men to rise up and say, I'm calling this what it is and rebuke it. Um, and then what comes to mind too, is like, if you're talking about husband and wife interacting and let's say there's a disagreement and you want to show charity to the other person and assume the best of them, there's absolutely still a way to say, I think you're wrong while you're doing that. Yeah. And I think it takes practice. So you, you can get good at that skill and nobody's good at it immediately. No. Is that? Maybe. Well, I mean, I, what I hear you saying is, is that, so imagine that you're, that you're in a, in a a woke or wokish church and so you're uncomfortable with this or you, or you even vocally significantly disagree with the doctrine that's being preached, perhaps even from the pulpit. And we'll, we'll go with from the pulpit rather than just in the congregation because that's a different problem. But you're, you disagree with the actual doctrines of the church. Maybe you watch them change or maybe, maybe something feels slightly off. How do you navigate the difference between holding leadership to account firmly and strongly and confidently and directly while also maintaining a belief in the best of who they are, right? How do you navigate that between being, um, 
being forceful in your objection, but charitable in your interpretation of their intention. Is that, is that kind of along the lines of what you mean? Okay. Um, that depends on the man. So if you're talking to me, <laughs> I mean, there's a, the, the thing is, there's a, there's a process, right? That's how I think about things. So if, if I put myself in that situation, I would be like, well, I disagree fundamentally on what the pastor just said. This is not something that I've personally experienced, but I'm thinking my way through it. I, I love everything that's preached from the pulpit in, in Apologia. So I don't want to sound like I'm suggesting that this is a situation that I've been in. So, um, so I would, my first thought would be, okay, I need to raise this in the right way with the right people and make sure that if I disagree, I respect authority first. And so I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm going to put in a lot of work to make sure that I'm right before I run this up the flagpole. And then I would schedule a meeting with my, with my evidence to say, hey, just so you know, and confront it person to person, perhaps even man to man. What, from, from the men's work world, one of the principles that I learned is that you criticize in private, praise in public. And that's what men should do for each other. It's like, if I got a problem with a friend, right, or someone that I know, I'll criticize in private, praise in public. So in a church environment where we're taught to be charitable, it's not to stand up in the middle of the sermon and say, excuse me, I got a problem, right? Or to even, or to post it on a Facebook page or, or to even mention it in a, in a gossipy way to someone else in the congregation to say, um, it, if the, with the exception of maybe a friend, say, hey, I heard this and I just want to check it out with you. That's a very different intention, making that person. So it's not gossip. When you, if, the, if the person is part of the solution, it's not gossip. If, if someone is not part of the solution, that's, that's a good metric of gossip. So to prevent gossiping, check it out with them, do your own research, and then have a private sit-down meeting. And if you're still confident in your position and you can back it up scripturally, right, then there's, an, there's probably an escalation component of that, which is whether this is a church or whether it's a, a, a business that you work for or a family all these, or a group of friends, I think all these processes would be the same to respect the, the hierarchy of authority as men, we're called to do that, but also to respect the truth more and to respect the individual and not to confront them publicly unless it becomes absolutely necessary. And you can see this happening right now with um, some of the guys in Moscow, Doug Wilson, Toby Sumter, as well as some others, and uh, this man, Gary DeMar, who is a, a, a he, he heads up a company, I don't know, the, uh, found it, American Vision. And they're taking issue with Gary DeMar's perspectives on eschatology. And so there's been a public letter that's been issued. And I, I'm not going to litigate what's going on there right now, but except to use as an example that private emails were sent to Gary, and they've all talked about this publicly. Private emails were sent to him. Extensive conversations were had. He was not willing, to, it sounds to me like he was not willing to budge or compromise or elaborate, and in some cases didn't even get back. So a bunch of men signed on to a public letter that they then released. And so the reason why that is still an in integrity is because an entire process was engaged in privately before it became public. So um, maybe less so in terms of like, how do you handle um, the confrontation verbally between being charitable versus being direct is what's the process you would engage in to handle it appropriately? And are you willing to engage in that process? And that I think is, is the missing component of the, of the question. Because knowing that there's a process to participate in gives you the confidence that I'm going to go through this in the right way. And if I don't think I'm going to make it all the way, I probably shouldn't do it, right? 
But if I think I can actually get there and that I'm right and I'm willing to fight this all the way, then you should. Instead of like, hey, you're a jerk and you're wrong. <laughs> right? So that's my, that's my essay, essay length answer, answer about that. Yeah. That's fine. Mm. Yes. Could you repeat it? Sorry. I didn't... Yeah. Do you think the five hundred quality? No. Maurice. No. Want to take it? I was gonna let you take. I okay, mean, I I'll feel like it. that's a, there's a bit of a historical question since you had read that whole book about. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I'll let you take it. So. Um, so from feminism's perspective, uh, feminism came first. So the definition of radical feminism is that um, this, is, this was, as of 2021, this was on the Wikipedia page because I, I did a presentation about it. Um, oppression of women, is a, this is their own definition as a Wikipedia as of 2021. Uh, oppression of women is a trans historical foundation, a trans historical phenomenon that is the foundation and model for all other forms of oppression. That was radical feminism's definition. So, from their perspective, beyond the historical question, men's supposed oppression of women is what found is what inspires, you might say, or lays the foundation for all other forms of oppression. So, the first boundary that had to be smashed. Was um, was complementarian versus egalitarian. They have to be made equal, and then you can use that as the model to push all other forms of equality. So that that's that's feminism, and and I would say that started in the late 1800s, probably sooner. Actually, probably like the French Revolution is when it really started. If you were to ask, if you were to ask people fighting for racial equality, they might say that feminism borrowed their ideas, but I I think radical feminism is is because male and female is the most fundamental distinction going all the way back to the garden and that race is not a biblical concept, I would say that um, ethnicity is, but race is not. I would say that probably the, the oppression of, supposed oppression of, um, of men, men of oppressing women is what happened first. That's my answer. Yeah. I was going to say too, it's, it's a time in history where there's also a lot of momentum in terms of like, everything happens so, so fast. And we went from, oh. you know, so I guess what I'm saying is it kind of makes sense that it all kind of bleeds together a little bit. And that's why sometimes the conversation with people is very muddy because mm. you can't really, in their mindset, the fight for racial equality and feminism are very interwoven. Yes, And so it actually gets, it's very difficult sometimes to parse out the differences because it's so fundamental to their worldview that, you know, <laughs> that women are just as oppressed as if you had been a slave oh, in the yeah. South. So from that perspective, like, it kind of depends who you ask because, I, I mean, I, lo I look at it as completely different battles, but for some of these people, it's like the, the, their banner is just like any and all things that they deem oppression. So well, that's that, that's the lens that they view reality through. That's it. Well, it's the power. Power is the Marxist like way of seeing the world is mm -hmm. as a series of power struggles, which you 
which you get from marks and uh angle, angles angles yeah. so if you and this is this is the thing that isn't necessarily mm-hmm. obvious about the left is that um within the racial equality battle they would say that feminism was always a white woman thing that was like that's their own language like feminism was oh. always about you know, middle-class white women is what they said in the 19, in the 1960s. And so there was real animosity there. And you see the same thing, you know, with JK Rowling, the trans exclusionary radical feminists. So you have all these loosely allied groups Mm -hmm. that actually disagree, that actually hate each other, but they're unified by their hatred of God more than their hatred of each other. And I, and I can, I was part of Occupy Wall Street in San Francisco. That's how long my journey has been. Back in 2011, I was an active, I was an active, uh, active member. And I remember going to those meetings and it was actually very formative for me to begin to questioning my own ideology at the time and seeing all these people arguing about which political cause was the most important. You had people saying that like, they had you had people saying like, you, gotta, you have to save the spotted owl. That's the most important one. Or climate change is the most important. There was no mm-hmm. wokeness at the time, by the way, this is 2011. Mm-hmm. So like I was the same six foot tall white guy that I am now and no one ever like made a thing out of it that showed up later. But like people were fighting over these different political angles over what was the most important one. And I was looking at them all arguing with each other. And I'm like, there's got to be something deeper than this. And they can't, it can't be any one right. of these. There must be something really systemic right. going on. And that was uh, the beginning of my transition out of that, out of that worldview. Because I never, because wokeness wasn't a part of it. So it wasn't, I'd, I'd never heard the word patriarchy. I never <laughs> heard the phrase toxic masculinity. Never once. Wow. That, sh- that actually showed up in a, cir- in a men's group that I was in um, uh, about a year or two later. <laughs> When I when when another man in the circle turned to me and said, "Check your privilege," and I was like, "Wait, what? What does that even mean? What does that even mean?" Well, the thing is, is it it landed like a like a bolt. Like what? Like it, I felt the energy of it, and I was like, "Whatever, whatever was said right there, it's not about the language. There's some weaponry in there. There's some energetic weaponry in there because it landed like it. Land, I felt it physically yeah. in my body, and that's when uh, the, I identify the language war really beginning." Where you have phrases like toxic masculinity, check your privilege, patriarchy, that yes. are these encapsulated concepts that have violence in them that are designed to, to harm people with language. Yeah. That's no, that's just, that's a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. That's a little bit. Yeah. Because <laughs> they do have their own vernacular, their own, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Another question? Yeah, please. Okay. So if I understand the, the question correctly, are there two to three things you said that I try to embody to set the atmosphere of my home? That's a really good question. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the word that comes to mind, and you see this in Proverbs 31, and this is not me saying I live up to this every day or whatever, but it's what I aspire to. So disclaimer. Yeah. People, (laughs) women have forgotten how to be kind. They've forgotten. And you you see this in first Peter talks about a quiet, gentle spirit. And you see this in Proverbs 31, the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. But that is the one word that just blew into my mind as you were asking that question was be nice to your husband, be nice to him. And if you watch enough TV or movies, you'll notice it is anything but that. The interactions between husbands and wives, it's like assumed that the wife will roll her eyes and dismiss 
and like the stupid dad or whatever. And so because as beings, we simply imitate what we see. That is unavoidable to our nature. We, we hear something. If I hear too much profanity, if I say, let's say I watch a movie, I hear too much profanity, I'm going to have profanity in my head the next day. It's just who we are. And so if women are watching these movies, they're, they're going to think this is a normal way of interacting with their husbands and fathers and sons even, which is scary as a mom of a son. Um, mm-hmm. But kindness is, and that's why like kindness from a woman to a man is now, I've heard stories of a woman just giving a man a compliment or saying something kind to a man she just met. And it's just, it's, and maybe Will can attest to this. It's not normal. Women don't <laughs> generally speak super kindly to the men in their life. And then when they do, they're considered a, we talked about this, a betrayer of the sisterhood or you're on the men's side now. It's like, right. this isn't about sides. The Bible talks about kindness so much in our interactions with one another. And yet somehow in marriage, we forget that it applies. So that's something that I'm working on. Um, because even though I never considered myself a feminist, I still saw the TV shows and I still watched the movies and I still hung out with women that just would casually toss an insult at their husband and everyone's expected to laugh and just like normal women interactions and you have to unlearn it. So be kind. (laughs) Sounds like a t-shirt, like just be kind, but like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I did a very, um, I did a very popular Instagram post that was related to that called Her Smile. Oh, yes. That, that was a good one. That was, that was a great post. And so the, the, the post is about, you know, men will often talk about um, what is the most, what's the most attractive part of a woman, these conversations that men have. And what I said is that, you know, those, those conversations um, generally, depending on, depending on uh, <laughs> the men involved, uh, revolve around one of two sets of curves, shall we say? So, um, so what I said is, is, um, and this is the honest answer is that the most attractive part of a woman to me always is her smile, but not just her smile, but there will be moments in my life and they're rare. And this is why it's noteworthy. We're all being public and I'll see a woman like from across the room or whatever, like in a coffee shop like this, and she'll just be smiling quietly to herself, not thinking that anyone's watching, right? Just enjoying the, pure, the joy, pure, pure joy of being that is not readily accessible to men and how rare I see that. But when I see it, mm. it lights up my whole day. And so the post is about that, about how rare it is to see a woman who just truly smiles for no apparent reason. Maybe not that she got a good email from work or good news, but like just a quiet moment of happiness to herself, the contentment. And I think this is tied to that where it's like, to really offer a gesture of, of kindness, of true feminine kindness to a man, it has to come from a place of contentment. And if it does, and if it can, you can change his whole day and his whole life. And I've seen uh, on Instagram, <laughs> women know that their smile is powerful. Or, or, or oh, let's, interesting. There's, I saw this reel and it was, it was horrifying and I'll just explain it. Oh. Um, but there's this trend going around where it says, you know, my husband says, you know, you should smile more. 
And why, that's why men say that. Men say that, and and women take such offense at this. Like you, you want me to smile. What if I'm not happy? And you want me to smile while I'm not happy. You want me to suppress my emotions. It just it's it's, it's insane. But anyway, whoa. Um, <laughs> so there's this there's this thing where uh, it says you know, husband says you should smile more, and so the wife she'll be like doing dishes and she'll put on this like really cheesy like. <laughs> And she's like, okay, you know, and like, am I smiling now? Or there was one that said, oh, my husband says you should dress nicer or whatever. And so the woman like puts on these dresses to like clean the toilet. And she's like, you happy now? Like this kind of mockery. (laughs) um, (laughs) Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Um, And it's it's horrifying. So, I mean that that reminded me of that is it's it's like something that can be um like exploited and like like yeah. like Alison Armstrong talks about like it can use be used in the wrong way yes and that's exactly what i see these women doing it's like okay you want me to smile i'm not going to give you what you want and i'm going to give you the opposite give you of what the you opposite. want i'm, I'm going to make a mockery you. so kindness smiling like we, like want to improve your marriage <laughs> smile more at your husband is a really good like place to start mm-hmm. <laughs> um Really simple, really easy. Yeah, and and men do notice. Mm-hmm. Men are um, men get ridiculed for being superficial, but that's actually not true. Men are hyper visual. Mm-hmm. We take in, and I, I always thought it was me. Men take in so much information with their eyes, which makes sense. You know, thousands mm-hmm. of years of being hunters, right, and craftsmen and stuff like that. But we see with our eyes, it makes us less intuitive. Mm-hmm. Makes us very, but that that gets ridiculed as being superficial when in fact we're hyper, hyper visual. Yeah. And so a, a real genuine smile, like he may not like buckle down into like a, a puddle <laughs> of tears. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, but he'll notice. Yeah. He'll notice. We notice everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean um, that we're crippled by everything mm-hmm. because our bodies are designed to continue persisting despite ongoing sustained discomfort. That's literally how we're designed yeah. to be, right? Um, but that's why the tiniest little shift from any of that will immediately be noticed and immediately be, will be felt and can transform a man's entire being, right? And, and that's, and I think in some ways, like we're all Marxists now. Like we don't want to be, but it's like, we, well, because like we, we're, we grow up with these power dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. And so how can I control my husband? And then you see in the dialogue how men controlling women, like we're all stuck in this Marxist kind of paradigm and Marxism is all about physical, material power. Women have to be powerful. What does that mean? Well, women have to have money and they have to be CEOs and they have to be in politics. That's power. But there's no notion of something called love. Emotional. Emotional power is not the right word. but Influence. M- influence, moral power. Because you can take an army of braveheart dudes, blue face paint, kilts, Harry screaming, ready to charge the English, all fired up, right? And then you can take a woman and you can walk her across the battlefield in like a flowy dress and bare feet and you'll watch all these guys go, <laughs> right? Right. There's, there's no power on earth like that. The only similar power to that is you take a, a wise old man with gravitas, right? Like maybe he's hobbling right? On like a cane. Mm-hmm. He's like ancient, you know, but he's got that look and he stands on the battlefield. And he looks at the men. Doesn't have to say a word. He just looks at them. 
I'm like, oh, okay, I guess we're going home now, right? That's power that Marx can't conceive mm-hmm. of. And where is it coming from? It's coming from a woman and an old man. Mm-hmm. So like we get all charged up on this male power without understanding that there is a higher form of power and, and that's the limitation that, that, that's godly in a way. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Can I shoot at anyone to look? <laughs> Any other questions? You got us here. Going once. Going, Going twice. twice. Okay. <laughs> Would you like to take that one? That's like the best question ever. So the question, the question was, how can we begin moving back to restoring these relationships within the church and then also outside it? You take what you know and you, and you apply that wisdom. You apply that knowledge into wisdom and you live in accordance with it. Because that's how any of us, to reference the Queen's Code again, like mm-hmm. there's a woman in there named Claudia. She's an older woman and her granddaughter notices the way that she interacts with her husband. And that's what makes her go, maybe I should talk to this woman. Maybe I should ask my grandmother for advice. And she goes to her and she, all, all this woman was doing is simply living out the wisdom and truth that she had and letting it change her life. So you don't need to like, some of us are called to have pages and talk about this and whatever, but all of us have to be living it. And so you, you're a barista, you get to smile and, and you get to, treat people with dignity and you get to when your female coworker makes a snide remark about her husband you get to decide what you do with that comment and you don't engage in the way that she's expecting you to and you show her a better way and you respect the men in your life and you'll do more than you possibly can imagine with that uh, yeah Oh yeah, uh, I want to take a take a crack at it from from a couple different perspectives. So I think everything that Annalise said for women is absolutely appropriate. And the, and what I would add to that, it also shows up in the Queen's Code. First of all, read the Queen's Code because to read the book and encounter the ideas in motion is far more powerful than anything we can say. But as as a woman, I think there's also, and this is illustrated in the book, once you begin interacting with men in a way that honors them you will begin receiving pushback from the other women in your life. They will see you betraying what Alison Armstrong calls a sisterhood because there's a way that women have been taught to relate to men that is that they are opponents, that they are adversaries, that they must be dismissed and controlled and deprived of their power. And that just seems to be the understood thing. And when a woman decides to do not that, she receives pushback from the women in her life. So you have to be willing as a woman to commit to the truth despite the cost to your social relationships. Now, as Jordan Peterson says, women are very agreeable by nature. And that, that agreeability is a wonderful gift that women have, but it actually doesn't serve them in this uh, well, reconciliation yeah. of the sexes. It doesn't serve them because there's a component of like the sisterhood. We all hang together, right? We're all against men, right? It's like, well, no, I don't want to be against men anymore. I actually want to be happy. Bye. And that's a real thing. That's a real thing. Um, and so that's, that's for women. And that is, that is, I think, your own um, unique cross to bear in the situation. And I think the answer for men is, because men have a, a, a role to play, 
their own role to play in this is that men have abdicated in their responsibility to have moral authority. A man who tries to exert physical power without moral power is an empty man. So um, if a man begins to get physically strong and confident, but is a jerk and has no moral authority, he's empty, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and everyone sees that and everyone feels that, and that's what everyone fears. If men become powerful again, will they be immoral, empty men? Will they lack moral authority? That's the concern. So what I say for men is in addition, and this is an enormous ask, it's an enormous ask, but it's worth it, is as you grow in your own ability to take on material, material responsibility, you must grow in your ability to embody moral authority at the same time. And that creates a man of gravitas. And then that man is, some, is someone that men and women are uh, attracted to. And I don't mean that necessarily in a, in a relational sense, like in terms of like marriage, dating, though also that, but it's leadership, it's mm-hmm. embodiment. And that's the role that men have to play is to begin embodying a thing that's really hard. Like it's hard building a good body. It's hard building a successful business. It's harder to embody moral authority because that involves repentance, that involves fixing your life, that involves all the confession, all these different things. And a man who can successfully do that and embody moral and physical authority is a man who leads. Again, it's an enormous ask, but that's the role that men have to play. And I, I hold them to that standard because that's the standard I, I try to hold myself to. So the, the two different roles that we can play and the way that they feed into each other, because it would be very easy to be a man, to kind to a man like that. And so men have to become that too. That's my answer to the question. Yeah. In you, you had a, yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we started. Well, a, a righteous man falls seven times and gets up seven times. And I mean, the question is about the, the basically the progressive nature of sanctification. That uh, you know, someone starting their their journey in becoming the woman they want to be or the man they want to be, and it is full of bumps and bruises, and sometimes you do the exact opposite of what you're actually intending to do, and you hurt people. And I, I, I mean, I speak this from a place of, I absolutely understand because I've done that. And sanctification looks like this. You're still going up, but you're going down a lot (laughs) (laughs) while you're going up. And that is why the key word here is repentance and that we have the ability to apologize. This is an incredible thing that we can do as humans is that we can wrong someone and then we can go to them and apologize and ask for forgiveness and we can repent. And so all of this talk would make, would be very disheartening and discouraging, especially if you're like, let's say you're a wife and your husband's working on this and like, he's not doing the way I think he should. And I'm not doing the way I think I should. It's all very discouraging if you don't have the key of repentance and restoration. Because I have, I have been on this, I'll call it my femininity wife journey for three, four, five years now. And the amount of times that I've gone to my husband and said, I'm so sorry for what I said to you. I'm so sorry for what I did. 
I screwed up. I, I hurt you. Will you forgive me? And of course he does every single time. If I didn't have that, none of this would mean anything. <laughs> none of this would work. <laughs> I, I'd like to, like to add to that. Um, you know, one of my one of our requirements for someone I'm going to marry is they have to be able to apologize. Mm-hmm. If she can't say, I'm sorry, then forget it. And that's, sometimes that feels like a really big ask. Well, no, kids don't grow up seeing that. Exactly. I grew up up seeing that because my dad would come to us like he, he had a bit of a, I don't know, a lot of men (laughs) can yell at their kids (laughs) and, um, have a problem with that. And so, but he would come to us afterwards and like, sometimes we'd be sleeping and he'd knock on the door and he was like, Hey, Ane, I wanted to apologize for you for the way that I raised my voice at you and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And he did that so many times that like, that was, that was what it meant to, I mean, that was strength and that was, that was just embedded. Yeah. And, and so it was modeled for you. It was modeled. So, but the good news is even if you didn't see it modeled, like you can apologize and it can be so uncomfortable the first time you do it and you can feel like you're dying inside and you can feel like your pride is being ripped out and that is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so just like, just embrace the discomfort of apologizing and because there's so much freedom and life and, you know, restoration on the other side of that. Actually, I want to, I want to speak to that specifically because I think, I've, and I'm, I'm speculating, you'll have to, tell me whether I'm onto something here is I think women and men um, have a different relationship to apologies in a way. I think women fear that men are vindictive and they're not men are not vindictive (laughs) at all. Now women, women are vindictive. We keep a record of wrongs. You do. Men do not. And that's the thing is that like a woman can say, I forgive you because I've apologized. Like, sadly, I am very good at apologizing. It's a skill I've had to learn. I hate that I've had to learn it, but I love that I've had to learn it. But you can feel, I can feel when I apologize, it's like, you're still upset. And you haven't let it go yet. And I hate that. But men, yes. men are not like that. There's this meme <laughs> of... <laughs> um, <laughs> and the meme is known, apparently. Okay, well, it's... <laughs> well, okay, so there's this... I, I, maybe it's known among, like, moms or whatever, but... Um, there's a scene of, it says me apologizing to my toddler for raising my voice at them. And then it shows in the next slide. It's like my, it's like a scene of like Loki from Avengers. And he's like, yes, very sad anyways, because he just moves on immediately. And it's a joke of like, yeah, you apologize to your toddler. And then the toddler's like, okay, like moves on. But that's how I feel with my husband in a sense, because apologize. It's like, yes. Moving on, never hear about it again. And, and, and most men are like that. I mean, yeah. I, I, the same with, because uh, I would apologize to my dad growing up, you know, um, and never, never experienced any kind of harboring of pulling things up from the oh. past. But women, on the other hand, <laughs> we're like, it's, it's almost like we want to put it like a probationary period right. or like you apologized, but. Let's see how you really are. And there's a lot of single women in this room, so I'm just going to say this. Just kill that idea now before you get married and, and, and vow that when you extend forgiveness, you're actually extending real forgiveness, yeah. not probationary forgiveness, not 
um, <laughs> you know, a suspicion that they're just going to do it again. And so you're going to withhold love is vulnerable. You're, you're putting your heart out there and forgiveness is vulnerable. But if Christ hadn't extended to you, we'd be burning in hell. So let's <laughs> remember that yeah. um, and extend the same kind of unconditional forgiveness. That doesn't mean that people take this far, but like you talk about unconditional forgiveness. Like, well, what if he's abusive and this and this and this? And it's like, well, then you go through the channels of the church and you get That's help. Right. That's right. That's not what we're talking about. That's right. So that's a separate discussion. Completely. You still extend forgiveness um, from the bottom of your heart and and choose to not opt out of vindictiveness, bringing up past hurts, and you move forward. Yep. So, yeah, men don't men don't hold. It's it's not considered masculine for men to hold grudges, right? If if someone apologizes to you. Even if, even if, and this is understood in, in honorable circles of men, even if someone does something really terrible to you, if you're in, now remember, this is in a circle of men where you're supervised around other men. It can also be person to person as well. But I've been in environments where guys have really, really wronged each other, really, really wronged each other. And I've watched this happen where it's like, if a man extends his hand in forgiveness, like you can struggle to take it. But when you take it and you shake his hand, it is dead wow. and buried. It is over. And, 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 and when you're ready to really let it go, and that can take a minute. When you're ready to really let it go, you take his hand. And as soon as you take his hand and shake his hand, it's dead and buried and gone and over forever. Now, if it comes up, if it comes up again, it is on you to handle that. And it's considered dishonorable, very deeply, deeply dishonorable. Because you can't force wow. emotion things to go away. But it's like, you guys... You guys made up. It's over. Bury the hatchet. You may have heard that phrase. That's what that means. Bury the hatchet. In fact, I just got into um, conflict with a with my my longest standing friend. So I've lost a bunch of friends over the years um, from leaving San Francisco and becoming Christian and and all these things. <laughs> but there's one guy from from that from that time that has stayed with me, and uh, his his name is Dan. And we've been friends for for more than ten years. And he's tracked with me when a lot of other people have like let's say slandered me and, and left and abandoned and all that stuff. And he's tracked with me. And we actually recently got in, he was in one of my men's groups and we got into like full conflict, like in the men's group in front of all these a men's group that I was leading. Right. And like super awkward because here we are with 10 years of friendship and yet I'm in a leadership role as well. And I'm having to navigate like what do I do here. And we fully, we fully fell out. Like if you, if you goodbye, I never want to talk to you again kind of stuff. And then like, through the, I mean, it was really bad. I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll just never talk to this dude again. I was, I was really in that place inside my heart, and uh, because I've lost so many people as a result of becoming Christian, some of them explicitly, and so I'm used to, especially over the past couple of years, people just leaving, people doing terrible things to me and leaving. Um, and so I'm like, oh, this is just another example of that. But then, um, as a couple of weeks, couple few weeks went by, felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, like gosh, I really, I really handled that like crap. Like there may be something wrong that, that he did objectively, but I still handled it like crap. And so, um, and so I reached out to him through text message and said, Hey man, just want to apologize and make restitution. I made a concrete offer for, for restitution. And, um, he wrote back a couple or so days later, he's like, 
Totally, man. I completely understand. In fact, I got other things I want to apologize for too. And I'm glad you reached out. And so he wrote back and he apologized for some things. And now we're going to hang out together when I go up to Portland in uh, about a week, a couple weeks. And like it's, it's dead and buried and gone. Right. And like we can get into such extreme conflict as men ending friendships over it. But when the hand of forgiveness is extended, if a proper apology is offered, and I think that's something that gets lost. Like the art of apology is finding the thing that you actually feel convicted in your heart that you did wrong, right? Like and what, using precise language. Yes. You Not, all, I'm sorry, you felt that oh, I did. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I said this thing with the intention to hurt you. Yes. And like, let it sting as it's coming out of your mouth. Like, just let it hurt. Yeah. Because the truth sets you free, but it... Kicks <laughs> you in the butt first. <laughs> it really does. And and so for women apologizing to men, the, I think the fear is that, well, what if he holds it against me like I would hold it against somebody? He's not going to hold it against you. No. A sincere apology mm-hmm. offered from the depth of your heart, what you truly did wrong in a spirit of contrition and humility will be accepted. And maybe there will be tears and a hug if, it, if you wounded him really deeply because women have the capacity to wound men really deeply in ways that the men don't let the women show, see. They won't, they won't show. Um, so he may have an emotional moment around it, but he'll forget it. You'll never hear about it again. That's I won't con- treat you any different. I won't treat you any different. In fact, you can wound him very deeply and you may not see any difference in him. He just knows to carry that because that's what men are. That's what we do. Like you saw, um, you've seen in the Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship of the Ring, Boromir, dude gets shot with three arrows. And what's he doing? Big arrows too. He's still fighting. That yeah. is us as men. That's why men cry yeah. during that scene. Like there are a few occasions that men know it is completely okay to cry in public, <laughs> right? That is one of those moments, like, like, like the charge of the road. When Aragorn's embracing him. Yeah. It's, 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 it's okay. It's okay. We're going to get through this, buddy. Right? That's one of them. And the Lord of the Rings has like three of them where it's like, it's generally understood among men that even if you don't have to be even be a Christian man, like it's okay to cry during that scene. And that's one of them because that's who we are. Like Boromir was convicted of what he did wrong and he knew how to make restitution. And despite oh, getting shot with three, yeah, right? Three giant arrows, he keeps fighting. That's who we are as men. So women have the capacity to wound us very deeply and we will keep fighting and never say anything about it in the hope that someday the Holy Spirit will convict our wife or our girlfriend or mother or friend's yeah. heart to say, I'm, I'm sorry. And then, you know, Total healing and restitution and reconciliation comes from that. Yeah. And you said the Holy Spirit will convict and it's our job not to resist the Holy Spirit, yes. Yes. but to, to yield and to surrender. And, and on the back half of that, it's the job of the man to actually offer his own, I'll, I'll say vulnerability. I don't like this word, but I'll offer it to say like, instead of saying, no, no, it's no big deal. Like the man has to acknowledge like, no, it, it was a big deal yeah. and, and give that as well. That's yeah. how the reconciliation process happens. And, uh, and, and that's the great reconciliation is that men and women both apologizing to each other for past hurts and past wrongs that we've done to each other in a spirit of pure reconciliation to move forward, mm-hmm. both doing it at the same time to, uh, to truly apologize for the things that we can apologize for. It's a big ask. Yeah. 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 Yeah, which is why we're having a conversation. We're hearing from a man, we're hearing from a woman. That's right. And that's going to get a unique 
I think that's why our podcasts do so well. I think so. Because we're able to, I don't know, when it's just me talking to myself, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the imagined audience. <laughs> it's, I think it's healing for people to hear like, oh, both of them are doing this. Because you could have like yeah. the jaded man who's like, women aren't trying to like learn how to respect and submit. Mm. Or you could have the jaded woman who's like, men aren't, aren't you know, they're, they're not interested in, you know, real relationships or whatever. When you have that bitterness, that's why they need to see the conversation where, nope, we're all on this journey. <laughs> no greater love hath a man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a teaching that applies to both men and women for each other. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think about like the whatever podcast where it's just like men and women being stupid, Oh, you know, like that, that those dating pod are fresh and fit. Oh, oh yeah. And yeah. we're, we're like the conversation that's happening here and that, that I hope to inspire is, is the exact opposite of that. Yeah. And that's where the world is at right now. Yep. The great reconciliation. It approaches, I heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just got a, a, a look in the eye from the general manager. So I think we've, uh, she just came in and poked her head very gently. And so I think, um, and we're a little over time, but um, thank you all very much. for Thank you for being here. Thank you, Annalise, yes. for, thank you. for another wonderful conversation. And thank you all for being here today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at renofmen. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.